This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Bevel by Caleb Andrew Ward and Ninth Grade Eternal by Andrew Cosma. Bevel, written and read by Caleb Andrew Ward. Listening time, 7 minutes, 49 seconds. Bevel, the inclination that one line or surface makes with another when not at right angles, by Caleb Andrew Ward. It's damp and cold sometimes, but it still has that charm that inevitably comes calling for you to return to your roots. Come back to me, it calls, and you'll respond, No, no, I cannot. It's home to some and a refuge for others. It's mine and it's yours, and it's his and it's hers. It's the last leap, and it's the Rathskeller where I hang my hat, the watering hole of the city of looms. Sweeping up at night is always the toughest because she stays the longest, and so do they. She'll sit from nine until two-thirty when we have to shuffle them out the door. She'll drink whatever's the cheapest. She'll guzzle it down without hindrance. She'll do it because she has to. She'll do it because she must. Half of her blood is blood, the other, pure rock gut. She'll chat, but always it's the same type. He's forty or fifty. He's never been in before. He's not from here. She's only twenty-six. He knows, whoever he is, that she's the best he's going to get. It's the scar on her face that makes her the perfect target for the men she gets. It's a droopy pockmark curving around her cheek. They ask about it. She intrigues them. Two more, she'll say. Two more, she'll say. Two more, she'll say. Two more, he'll finally say. He only seems to ever pay for the last one. She knows he's the best she'll ever get, too. In the past year, I've heard several different stories of how she got her scar, each one her own. Sometimes she reuses stories, but it's always a little different. For a man from Hickory, it was a dog attack. A man from Sanford, a car accident. A soldier from Fort Bragg, an angry ex-husband. And the man tonight from Red Oak? She was a cook for an ill-tempered French cook who couldn't control his knives. The scar extends from her left eye around her nose and back down to the middle of the left side of her chin. They sit on the far right of the bar, their lips constantly parched. They sit in excitement for what the other person is thinking, how they're thinking it, and what they'll do next. The bar is wooden. It's falling apart. She's never sat at another spot. I'm certain she was born right under the bar, went to school there, grew up, had her first date at that stool, even her first kiss. Her heart was broken for the first time right here. And now, she lives there. They drink. She laughs when they try to make jokes. Sometimes the music is too loud and I can tell she can't hear them. She laughs anyway. Every time she speaks, the scar creates a different Juan Gris painting. Every shape she makes, H, E, 
L.P. is a symphony of contours. I'll see her stumble to the bathroom, a nightly ritual in which she powders her nose and comes out on top of the world. He usually gets a little antsy, whoever he is. He doesn't know how he feels about her doing what she does, but he knows he'll plan his cock soon enough. This allows him to get past whatever hindrance he felt earlier. When she comes out of the bathroom, it's beguiling. She'll walk to the jukebox and put on Everybody Loves Somebody. It's her calling card, and she'll shuffle along the wall. By now, she has everyone's attention. With each rise and fall of Dean's voice, she slides and slips along the wall. She's carnal and in heat. Everybody loves somebody sometime. Everybody falls in love somehow. Something in your kiss just told me. My sometime is now. It's close to two now, and she's captured the attention of everyone at the bar. Just a half a dozen of us. The men who haven't been buying her drinks tonight are now wishing they had. Their potential sex partners have all adjourned to their other watering holes. They watch along with me as she crawls on the dirty floor towards the suitor of the night, up his legs, sliding her hand through his crotch and up to his throat, stroking it slowly and daintily with the hint of angst. He closes his eyes, whoever he is, and pictures what position he'll fuck her in first. Maybe he'll take her in the butterfly position. Or maybe they'll barely get inside the hotel room he's rented for his weekend of debauchery, and he'll slide inside her in the pseudo-homey kitchen. But what he'll probably end up doing is throwing her on the ground and fuck her so badly she forgets where she is. Everybody finds somebody someplace. There's no telling where love may appear. Something in my heart keeps saying my someplace is here. She ends her dance with an alascan to a slack adagio and a final drunk pas de basque. The cacophony of her feet stomping is barely audible below Dean's symphony under his voice, the strings being bowed, smooth, and sensual. You can almost taste the kents in the air, sharing a cigarette with the king of cool. She circulates with each body roll in isolation in a mating call I know all too well. I watch for her face when she dances. She dances away from the light, but once in a while the light from the pool table will catch her face for a moment and I think I can actually appreciate her. As the song closes, she gets lower and lower to the ground until she's in a crawl, until the finale's crescendo. Everybody loves somebody sometime, and although my dreams were overdue, your love made it all worth waiting for someone like you. He picks her up off of the ground and kisses her. It's the first time of the night. It's sloppy and he misses the first one, but plants the second square on her mouth. She's uncomfortable the first time they do this, but she makes amends with grasping his ass as firm as she can. Her geometry is off, grabbing too far to the left or right, but finally making her way to the sweet spot. She looks in his eyes for some sort of tunnel into the pass. After they kiss, she stands still and straight, Everyone but me has turned their attention back to their drinks. I always feel special for seeing this moment. The other men miss out on this, but I've always made it a point to look longer. It's only for a few seconds, but I think in those seconds she almost always considers walking away. Home, maybe to a phone to apologize to someone, or to an apartment where a man who really loves her sits and waits for her to come home. She always kisses again. 
They'll collect her things, spread about by her blitzed foxtrot. You're beautiful, I whisper when she walks past. He always tips me. Maybe it's so I forget his face as the one who took her home. It's not enough. I remember all of their faux faces. Sweeping is the hardest. Her perfume always stays. She always drops something, a note, a receipt, or a cheap bracelet. I like to imagine she leaves them for me. It always takes me longer to sweep on nights when she comes around. Everybody loves somebody, sometime. Caleb Andrew Ward is an undergrad at UNC Wilmington, studying creative writing and film with a minor in English. Bevel is a short chapter from his forthcoming novel. He considers being a part of Boundoff both an honor and a privilege. Ninth Grade Eternal, written and read by Andrew Cosma. Listening time, 8 minutes, 38 seconds. Ninth Grade Eternal. For years they'd been there, ninth grade eternal, the clock continuing to measure class periods hour by hour, and their bodies, oh, their bodies, the same gawky fawns their parents had called them fawningly, lovingly. Those parents more myth now than reality, their reality this grade they've never left, can never leave, Lord knows they've tried. Haven't they? George remembers raising his hand to ask permission for a bathroom break. Anya has stood countless times to recite her report on drug abuse in federal prisons, her report on penguin insanity, her report on how long it really takes for an orange to molder, her report on how long it really takes for the mold on the orange rind to penetrate the flesh beneath, her report on how much healthier moldy orange juice is than the regular kind. She has given so many reports, her voice is the hum that blankets those few moments of classroom silence. Edgar has become an expert spitballer, able to hit the tip of the earlobe or the skinward side of a pair of glasses from twenty feet away. As for Lauren, Randall, Shamika, and Terence, the entire class has forgotten their names, if those were their names, assuming they haven't forgotten as well, never called on, never raising their hands, the seats in their bodies becoming one, becoming centaur, and the books on the desks before them not only unopened, but never opened. Time passes. Oh, but yes, time passes. The clock is a squinting eye. The bell rings, but it is only a distant thunder. The storm never comes. The rain never arrives. The land is scabrous with drought. For ages there has been someone at the front of the room that they assume is the teacher. What was her name? Johnny made fun of it, so it must be something like Ms. Feckerly, or Ms. Virginia, or Mrs. Contardi, or Mr. Balson. They assume their teacher is female because most teachers are, and because she is wearing a skirt. But it could be a kilt. Or it could be a skirt, and she could be a he because this is a progressive school, and they are allowed to wear what they want, so why shouldn't the teachers be able to? Frances has been paying attention. Although she is not in the front row, and she was never a good student before this, she has the report cards in her backpack to prove it, those she was supposed to deliver to her parents. But she has been paying attention. She knows this is not right. 
and she knows because she doesn't remember ever seeing her teacher's face. Also, the teacher, Francis will call it a her even though even she isn't sure, she just wants a concrete fact to hold on to. The teacher is writing constantly on the board, moving steadily as a snail from left to right, and the board is filled with her elephantine script. But here's the thing Francis notices. When the teacher, she'll call her Ms. Stent, reaches the extreme right of the board, suddenly she'll be back at the left side again, still writing, the board before her clean as a newborn. And here's the real thing. Francis never notices exactly when this magician's trick happens. At the moment Ms. Stent reaches the edge of the blackboard, Francis's attention is distracted. There's a loud thud from outside the door as though someone just collapsed to the ground. A bird slams into the window. She hears a scream from behind her in the classroom, but when she looks, nothing has changed, and no one is gone. No one that she notices. But below George is a stinking pool. His desk is sinking through the floor. Anya's mouth is bleeding, the lips chapped to raw muscle. Her head hangs at a doll-like angle. Above Edgar is a Damocles sword of spitballs stuck to the ceiling tiles, the stalactite as large as the boy below. There are the smooth-skinned, faceless creatures occupying the back row, just furniture now. Where their mouths had been are now perfect black holes wide enough to stick a fist into. They produce moans like air blown over an open bottle by a bored child. And Francis, this is it. She's had enough. They've had enough. Enough, she cries. Everyone turns toward her, except Ms. Stent. She continues writing on the board. One by one, the students return to what they were doing. But Frances stands. Her skirt peels away from her seat as though attached by glue, the flower pattern imprinted on the blue plastic. She takes a step forward, but it is difficult, as though moving through honey. It is only now that Frances approaches the blackboard that she really sees, actually comprehends, what Mrs. Stent is writing. It is Frances's life story every mundane detail described exactly and dispassionately. Frances stumbled to the bathroom and peed into the toilet, splattering both the seat and the floor. She did not clean up after herself. In the midst of washing her hands, Frances became distracted by a zit on her nose and squeezed it until the flesh was bruised and the pus expelled onto the mirror and her fingernails. Is that what everyone is reading? Behind her, Yanis scribbles down notes furiously, the pen biting into the paper as though his life depends on what Ms. Stent writes. Frances is caught by the story of her life regaled in chalk, but only for a minute before anger takes hold. She must stop this. She must convince Ms. Stent that she has no right to write down Frances's life for all of the class to see. As she approaches the teacher, Frances finds it harder to take the next step. She still can't see Ms. Stent's face. She approaches the teacher from an angle, and Frances should be able to see her face, at least the side of it, because Ms. Stent has to face the blackboard directly in order to write, right? But Ms. Stent keeps the back of her head facing Frances, her mass of wiry black hair barely constrained by a bright rubber band which, 
as Francis well knows, is not healthy at all for your hair, and her worry about Ms. Dent's hair distracts Francis from the fact that she is only one step away from being able to reach out and touch Ms. Dent's shoulder, Ms. Dent's head now turned almost parallel with her shoulders in order to keep her face hidden from Francis. Francis does not want to touch her teacher, but it's too late now. When she looks back at the classroom, she sees her desk is already occupied by another. Far at the back there are open desks, but they are half in shadow. Shapes move in the shadows. Concrete blocks have fallen from the wall and crushed desks beneath them. She reaches out her hand, but slowly, as though afraid to startle Ms. Stent, as though Ms. Stent is a machine made of knives, and one wrong touch will set her whirring. Just when her hand is about to brush Ms. Stent's mottled blouse, her teacher is suddenly facing her, her head having revolved completely in an instant. Ms. Stent's face is bony, the skin still there, still vibrant with life, but with no muscle or fat beneath it. Her eyes are as large as golf balls and dry as stones. What are we doing here? Francis asks. Ms. Stent's lips are thin black lines, and they open to reveal a tongue as thick and shapeless as a sponge. Whatever she says, Francis knows it won't be enough. It won't answer the burning sensation in her gut, the quivering feeling that roils acid up her throat, the undeniable sense she has that whatever is happening, what afterlife, what apocalypse, what voodoo punishment, that she, Francis, and all the others, that they deserve it. Andrew Cosma's stories have appeared in Digital Americana, Stupefying Stories, and Diagram. His book of poems, City of Regret, Zone 3 Press, 2007, won the Zone 3 First Book Award. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>